Thank you for downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. And the Lord is good and Jesus saves. As you find your seat this morning, give somebody a fist bump and just say, Jesus saves. Let the person beside you know, Jesus saves. When the choir goes down, give them a fist bump because they did a good job today. Let them know Jesus saves. And as you open up your Bibles to the book of uh, Jonah, chapter number 3. Jonah, chapter number 3, and verse number 10. Jesus does save. If you believe that, say yes. Man, I was so blessed by the music this morning, and I'm so thankful you're part of today, our final lesson in a series that we started at the beginning of the year. We've called it Tomorrowland, and I've been so blessed by this series, but I think it's time to move on, and it's time uh, to, to wrap this up. In fact, last August, when the pastor and I were planning out what we're going to do in 2023, it was this message. We were in a house in St. George, Utah, that I thought, oh, I cannot wait to preach this message today. And I hope that enthusiasm and that um, uh, the wonder of this scripture comes through as we study what the Word of God says. And we're going to start today in Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 10. And the title of today's lesson is World Changers. How many of you are content with the way the world is right now? You're like, hey, everything's good. Like, that's fantastic. This is, this is the way things should be. How many of you would like to see the world changed in one area or another? Say yes. Okay, so we've got a pretty good consensus that the world should see some changes and there's some things that need to be done. Well, if that's true, the Bible tells us that there's a method to change the world. We've seen that method on multiple occasions throughout history. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 10, the Bible says this, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did at night. Jesus saves. If you believe that, say yes. In fact, let's say those two words together, Jesus saves. One, two, three. Jesus saves. He does. In fact, yesterday I was talking to a police officer in my office about what it means to know for sure you're going to heaven. And I shared with him that Jesus died on a cross, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins because we're all sinners, aren't we? I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. And we all need someone to pay for our sins. And yesterday in my office, he prayed and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. Why? Because Jesus saves. It's a message. The world can be changed because Jesus saves. He overcomes death. Jesus saves. It's a wonderful truth. And if you have not been saved, if you have not had your sins forgiven, it doesn't matter that you go to church or that you've tried really hard or that you uh, feel like you've done too much to have your sins forgiven. Jesus saves. He died on a cross, was buried, and he rose again so that you could know for sure you're going to heaven and you could have the peace of God and the forgiveness of your sins. What a wonderful truth. Jesus saves. The world is changed because Jesus saves. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 10, we're introduced to a group of people who find the deliverance and saving hand of God Almighty. They didn't deserve it. If anybody didn't deserve it, these people didn't deserve it. They're from a city called Nineveh, and Nineveh was a ruthless and uh, violent city. The things that they would do to people were just absolutely abhorrent. 
And yet God chose to save this city, the capital city from the nation of Syria, and God chose to use it through a man named Jonah, who this book is named after. We're going to see that today's events are not unique to Jonah, and that it wasn't just a start of Jonah's own uh, desire that brought the salvation of this city, but it, always st- it started all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 18 with a man named Elijah, who our study began with when we started Tomorrowland back on January 4th. Today we conclude that study. I hope it'll be a challenge and encouragement to you. Let's ask the Lord to bless this time. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to know you. We thank you for your word and how it models for us historical events from the past that teach us how to deal with you and to know your will and your word for us in today. As we conclude this series that we've invested much time in as a church, I pray that you would challenge us to be world changers because Jesus saves. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started our study about uh, 12 weeks ago, and we saw that the nation of Israel, God's people, were in a time of decline. Everything about their society was in in decline. The religious sector of their nation was in decline. In fact, they had abandoned the one true God of Israel, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the one who gave them David, the one who allowed Solomon to reign peace and prosperity. That same God, the nation of Israel, had abandoned, and rather than accepting the tenets of his truth, they had adopted a false God named Baal. Because of that, the morality in the city was so bad. We saw last week, as we studied the scriptures, that cannibalism had even become part of their culture. It was such a time of depravity. Not only was there religious and moral uh, problems, but there were economic problems. There were times of great shifts of wealth and then prosperity and famines and feasts, and so much so that people were eating donkey heads at one time just to be able to survive. Militarily, they were weakening. Their borders were shrinking. The outlying prosperity was gone, and internationally, they were no longer a main player on the stage. Into that environment, we were introduced to a prophet of God in 1 Kings chapter 18, and his name was Elijah. In James chapter 5, the Bible tells us that Elijah was no better than you or me. He was just a dude. The Bible tells us he was a man with uh, like passions as we are. What that means is that he got hungry. When he didn't eat for a couple of uh, uh, hours or a couple of days, he would get hangry. How many of you know what it means to be hangry? How many of you are starting to feel hangry right now? Okay, just calm it down. It's all right. We'll be done in an hour and a half or so. But there's a, so Elijah was a person, he would, he would get hangry, he would get tired, he would get restless, he would have joy, and at times he would have, he would have sorrows. He even went into depression. He had serious um, human qualities that all of us could relate to. The difference with Elijah is that he looked at the condition of his city, and when we started Tomorrowland, he said, I don't want my nation to be a nation in decline. I don't want people to be serving as false god. I'm going to just do something about it, but what can I do? So he sees the religious problem, and he decides to pray. Well, that works, doesn't it? Unless there is no God, but he's just dumb enough to believe I'll pray and I'll ask God that it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And guess what? God answers his prayer. If you believe God answers prayer, say yes. Yes. If you said yes, did you ask God for anything this week? Good. Because prayer changes things. Prayer is just going to God and saying, God, I need this. God, I need this. God, I need this. God, would would you work in this situation? God, would you help out in this situation? And Elijah, he just prays. 
says, God, this is beyond my control. I can't fix the international problems. I can't fix the military problems. I can't fix the economic problems. I can't fix a whole lot of problems. But I can pray. And so when he prays, he praises a big prayer. Crazy. What kind of guy prays a prayer? Would you not let it rain until I say so? And God answers his prayer. It jostles the attention of the entire nation. And through his prayers, he decides, not only am I going to pray, but I'm going to fix the morality problem. I'm going to be pure. I'll be the man that God wants me to be. I can't fix what my neighbors are doing, and I can't fix what my aunt and uncle have done, and I can't fix my problem with my family, but I can be the man God wants me to be. And so in his purity, he becomes a problem solver economically throughout his story. You see him sharing. There's a whole bunch of sharing that goes on just for his sustenance. We see military. He just trusts God. And internationally, he doesn't do anything. Why? Because he can't get there yet. He's got all these problems right in front of his face. But Elijah starts this thing called Tomorrowland. We saw that God used Elijah. Elijah. And as God worked in Elijah's life, there became events where God brought revival. And the Bible tells us in Elijah's time, people cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. In fact, they abandoned Baal worship and the Lord became the Lord of Israel again. He was recognized as the one true God. But there was only so much Elijah could do on his own. And so God gave him a partner, gave him an associate, an apprentice to do the work of God with him. And his name was Elisha. And when we got to 1 Kings chapter 19, we see that God brought Elijah and Elisha as ministry partners to do the work of God together. And through their, their camaraderie, through their fellow, uh, fellow work together, the Bible tells us that God expanded their ministry. Now, everything didn't change overnight like they were hoping. And everything didn't just uh, fix itself. These were years and years of investing and doing what God wanted them to do and living the way God wanted them to live. But God brought Elijah, and then God brought him a partner named Elisha. Then they started a Bible college, if you will, called the Sons of the Prophets. And these two people together started training and ministering to young people, and these young people giving them a passion for the work of God and showing them the wonders of God's word and teaching them to live right and being people who would uh, give and be givers and not takers and, and would have a respect for the truth of God's word. And so the sons of the prophets began to model after Elijah and his business associate, Elisha, they started this model of training men to be what God wanted them to be. And the Bible tells us that trend of Israel that was going down levels off and starts to increase. They have military battles where they have victories, unprecedented victories. They should have never won that battle, but God starts to work in their life. Their borders begin to expand, and God is dealing with sin, and God is using this person who said, I'm just going to do what's right. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do in my place, and as I do what God wants me to do, I'm going to trust that God's going to work. And the Bible tells us that we are then introduced in today's final lesson to three characters. The first character is Jehu the Furious. The second character is Jezebel the Fallen. And the third character is Jonah, and he's going to be the future of God's work. I want you to see Jehu the Furious because we're first introduced to him in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 16. I want you to see about this, that Jehu is chosen, but there is a delay. Now, important point before we get into the text today. 
oftentimes, God will say it is so, but you don't see it happen for a while. Let me say it again. Sometimes God will make an anointing, but he will make, he will make us wait for the appointment. Does that make sense? Okay, for instance, God said to David, you're going to be king. He's a young man. And he goes through Goliath, and he goes through getting chased by Saul, and it's probably 12 to 15 years later before David actually sits on the throne of the king. Oh, by the way, God doesn't always just, God God doesn't just work that way where he says, I'm going to give a blessing. You do this, I will bless you. Oftentimes, the blessing comes later. In our American way of life, we want our In-N-Out burger right now, double-double. No pickles, because they're from Satan. And I want those, I just want, I want an in and out, I want to be in and I want to be out, okay? We want our microwave popcorn in two minutes and 10 seconds. God's processes are often slower than our expectations. But God will choose, but sometimes it's delayed, okay? Not only does he do that with blessing, but sometimes he does that with cursing as well. God will say, here's an indictment against you, judgment is coming. Well, is it happening tomorrow? Is it happening the next day? Is it happening three weeks from now? And sometimes we can accept the mercy of God or God's timing as God's ignorance or acceptance of our wrong deed. That would be a wrong understanding of the way God works. Here, this guy, Jehu, he is chosen by God. And I want you to see the verse. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, the Bible tells us about this guy named Jehu, that Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. When there is a national revival, God says, okay, you know this wicked king Ahab? And Ahab was a wicked king. In fact, the Bible tells us Ahab was so wicked, if you were to take all his sins and stack them up and all the sins of the previous kings, he had more sins by himself than all the previous kings before him. He was a bad dude. And God says about Ahab, you're going to be judged. And on the day that he says he's going to be judged, he commissions Elijah to go out and anoint a new king named Jehu. But 20 years passed, give or take. About two decades passed between the time when Jehu is told you're going to be king and Jehu becomes king. 20 years passed, now we are in the second book of the Kings, chapter 9 and verse number 2, where the Bible says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, and take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in, and make him rise up from among his brethren. And carry him to an inner chamber, then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and tarry not, because you don't want to be there any longer. What we see is that God chooses Jehu to be the next king of Israel, but there is a long delay. Now don't miss this point. Oftentimes, God will instruct us to do what's right, not for immediate gratification, but for eternal blessing. So here is a man named Jehu, who 20 years before was commissioned by God to be the next king of Israel. But he goes through this process of 
10 years and 12 years and 13 and 16 years and 18 years. I thought God said I was going to be the king. And on this day, God says it is time because his character is being developed. What Jehu is going to do as the king of Israel is going to be some gnarly stuff. In fact, some of the most violent and vicious animated portions of scripture follow the line of Jehu. This man who's going to be the king of God's people is going to be put in some of the most precarious, dangerous, and violent situations of the entire Bible. And the Bible tells us that he is ready to face them, and he's ready to face them with great, uh, with great courage and great vigilance. Because when this guy comes to be the king, we don't need a person with a man bun and a satchel walking around. When this guy becomes king, he can't be dealing with his anxiety and his tension and his socioeconomic problems. When this guy becomes king, he's got to be a man doing the work that a man needs to do. He's got to be ready. He's got to be battle-hardened. He's going to face some serious struggles. And so the Bible tells us that Jehu stands and he is ready to be the king. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 24, in one of the most um, tempered passages about Jehu's reign. The Bible says, and Jehu drew a bow with his full strength and he smote Jehoram, the, ki- the sitting king of Israel. He smote Jehoram with, uh, with a bow between his arms and the arrow went out at his heart and he sunk down in his chariot. With the commission and calling of God, the Bible tells us that Jehu executes the judgment of God upon the king of Israel and establishes himself as the king. On this day, he would not only kill one king, he would kill another king. He has a very hard struggle to go forward, but this was because God has developed these character traits in his life. Make no doubt about it. The struggles you've gone through, the blessings that you've had, the... the um, problems that you faced, God has a way of working those out for his glory. Does not Romans 8, 28 say, uh, I know that all things, for I'm persuaded that all things work together for what? For good to them that love God and them that are called according to his purposes. Whatever you've gone through, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it was a bad marriage, whether it was difficult parents, whether it's uh, health struggles with your children, understand that, uh, that God has a way of using all of those difficult times for his glory, and he does it with Jehu. The Bible tells us that he was chosen, he was developing in his character, but the thing that we know most about Jehu is this. His one trait is that he was a chariot driver. Yesterday, a couple of folks from our church, probably about three or four families from our church, went out to the speedway to race cars because they, they like to race cars. They're like car guys. Are there any car guys in here say Yes. All right, yeah, oh yeah, car guys, I'm a car guy. I do car things, and I do with grease and oil and car guys. Okay, that's awesome. Car guys are car guys. Okay, there were no cars during Jehu's time, but he had the closest thing to it. He had a chariot. Mm. And his chariot was one bad chariot. Look what the Bible talks about him. The Bible says in the watchman, told, saying that he came even unto them, and cometh not again. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Well, how how do we know that it's Jehu driving? For he driveth furiously. (laughs) 
This is Jehu. You know that Jehu had one bad chariot. And you know that Jehu's, those horses, they were just, mm, mm. and when they were breathing those muscles, and when those muscles were pulling that chariot, you know that his muscles were just flexing. And you know that chariot, oh, you know the rims on Jehu's chariots. You know those were some beautiful rims. And I don't know if they had hydraulics then, but if they did, he could, ooh, 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 he had lift on it. He had the LED. He had flames. He had whatever was cool. Jehu rode his chariot. And the Bible says that he drove his chariot. How? Furiously. He's the original Fast and Furious. Absolutely amazing. And the Bible tells us that God's going to use that. And he is going to become the next king of Israel, Jehu, the original Fast and Furious chariot driver. The Bible says this that Jehu would use that passion with such great vigor that Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. There was no mention of Baal in the entire nation of Israel. There were no statues. There were no t-shirts. There were no little Baal flags waving around anywhere. There was nothing. It was all gone. Why? Because Jehu, he wiped it out, and he wiped it out bad. The Bible says, The Lord said unto Jehu, because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, thy children to the fourth generation shall sit upon thy throne. Because Jehu did what God wanted him to do, even though he had to wait for a period of development, even though God had to work into his life to develop him to be the man God wanted him to be, he learned how to drive a chariot, and with that chariot, he executed judgment, and God says, not only will you be king, but your son will be king, and your grandson will be king, and your great-grandson will be king, and your great-great-grandson will be king, because Jehu, you do what God wants you to do and you brought the work of God. You eradicated sin, you got rid of Baal and you propped up the work of God in Israel. And that which started with Elijah is now a national revival in all of Israel and it's done through the work of God through Jehu. Isn't that awesome? But there's this outstanding tangent there's this one problem that still has not been resolved. Because Tomorrowland's idea began with Elijah looking at Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was a disgusting person. I want you to think of that old Wizard of Oz. Do you remember the old Wizard of Oz? Do you remember the, the, the witch off of the Wizard of Oz? She was beautiful compared to Jezebel. She was, she was Jezebel, just a wicked, and she was a witch. She was a witch of a lady. The Bible tells us this, that God had pronounced a judgment against Jezebel. Jezebel had killed innocent people. Jezebel had allowed children to die. Jezebel had turned the name of God into a swear word in her name. And the Bible tells us that she shed innocent blood. And because of her grievous assault against the work of God, God pronounced a judgment on her. What was that judgment? The Bible says, And Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Whenever you hear the word Jezebel, you should almost throw up in your mouth a little bit, like, Jezebel. And the Bible tells us Jezebel's still living. The now matriarch queen of Israel is still enjoying the dainties and luxuries of royalty. 
and her judgment has not been executed, but the furious chariot driver is about to show up. The Bible tells us, and when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her face. You just threw up in your mouth a little bit, didn't you? And the Bible says, and she tired her head. So she goes and she puts her lipstick on and she puts her makeup on and she, she pulls her hair in such a way to where she's like, hey, big boy. And she's got a martini glass in one hand and she's got the long cigarette in the other. And, and she's been smoking for 39 years and she's 38. She's been smoking. She's been smoking for a very long time. And, and when J, you can imagine whenever Jehu comes pouring into the city in a rage of fury, the Bible tells us that she looked out her window, and can you see her with her hair all dolled up, and can you see her with her lipstick all flamboyantly pasted across her face, and can you see her looking down and saying, hello, doll, can you see that picture? And Jehu will have none of it. The Bible tells us this. And when Jehu entered into the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace who slew his master? She's using a historical reference about somebody who hurt a sitting king and queen. Had Zimri peace? Are you sure you want to do this? No, this is the best thing to do. And Jehu looks up at her, throws up in his mouth a little bit, and the Bible says, And he lifted up his face to the window, and he said, Who's on my side? Who's, is there anybody in there on my side? And the Bible says, who? And there looked out from him two or three eunuchs. These are male servants who are doing the bidding of, of, Eli, uh, of Jezebel. And the Bible tells us that they kind of plop their head out. I always imagine like, bloop, bloop, bloop. <laughs> oh, we're on your team. <laughs> and the Bible tells us when these two or three eunuchs, bloop, 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 they pop their head out like, whoop, whoop, we're on your side. The Bible tells us when he gets their attention, he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. Can you imagine what that had been like? They go into the room. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Let me finish my drink. Ah, stop it! Stop it! And they throw her down. If you're a car guy, say yes. Don't you hate it whenever your car gets dinged? When somebody eats inside of your car? Why? Because you worked on this car and you polished this car and you got every speck of dust and how dare you eat your happy meal inside of my car? Because that car is your car, it's your prize, it's your joy. The Bible tells us when they throw her down, forgive the PG-13 relevance of the Bible here, but this is very PG-13. They threw her down. Ah! Can you hear her cackle as she falls out the window at the at the judgment of God. Ah! And she hits the ground. The Bible tells us when she hit the ground, some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall. Now this got to tick off Jehu. Look at the next phrase. And on the horses. Ah. Oh, do you know how hard it is to get Jehu, Jezebel blood out of horse? Oh. So look what the Bible says he does. She, ah, ah, you got your blood, Jezebel. Oh. So the Bible tells us that he takes his horses. Yeah, Jezebel. Yeah, yeah. Gook, gook. 
Oh! The Bible says he trod her underfoot. It's a pretty good thing that God does to the wicked queen. The Bible says, and he was come in. He's like, yeah, took care of Je- I'm now the king. And he eats and he drinks. He's having a good party. And after they feasted and the wonder of the battles that he's accomplished today, he gets his senses. He says, guys, 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 guys. All right, calm down. We got to go out there. And we need to go see this cursed woman, and we need to bury her, for she's a king's daughter. We need to bury her. No, let her get her kid. No, no, no. It's the right thing to do. We need to go bury her. She was, a, she was a king's daughter. So they go out to bury her, and when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. What happened to her? The Bible says, they wherefore they came and they said unto him, this is the word of the Lord, which he spake unto his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. What happened to Jezebel? She turned into Alpo. She became dog food. And no doubt, whenever those dogs ate her up, they probably threw up in their mouths a little bit too. Jezebel is taken care of. Jezebel, the fallen, she's gone, it's finished. Because just as God will sometimes delay his blessing, sometimes God will delay his punishment. And we should never confuse the mercy of God for his ignorance of our sin. The Bible teaches us, number three, about the future. And this is how we'll close our series today on this guy named Jonah. Because Elijah and Elisha, they have worked and they've worked, and their purpose was to bring about national revival. But realize this, God is not only concerned with one people group, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but all should come, uh, believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God wants every person to be saved. And so we hear the story of Jonah. You see, that sons of the prophets group that he had established, Elijah and Elisha had established and had worked on, would yield a great wealth of people who were serving God. In those group of people that were serving God, it is not a stretch to believe that the prophet Isaiah, the author of the largest single author book of the Bible, the book of Isaiah, was probably Uh, in no doubt influenced by the sons of the prophets, may have even been a student of Elijah or Elisha. Amos and Hosea would have no doubt been influenced by the prophetic ministry of these people. Jonah was influenced by this ministry. In fact, I'm of the opinion that Jonah was the next in line after Elisha to be the man of God or to be the prophet. The sons of the prophets were expanding. And that thing that Elijah started, oh, decades ago, is starting to yield fruit for a great big problem. What's that problem? Syria. In 2 Kings chapter 13 and verse 4, we see that Syria was such a problem that it's constantly knocking on the door of Israel, trying to take it out. And God, almost to the way you would shoo away a fly at a picnic in the summer, it's as if God keeps shooing away Syria. No, you can't fight. No, you can't. No, you can't. Stop. Nope. Stop. Stop cut it out, stop. The Bible tells us that God has to keep rebuking back Syria in their uh, uh, attacks against 
Israel. The Bible says in Jehoahaz, who is the son of Jehu, the next king after Jehu, Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. In a national revival, they recognize God. The new king recognizes God, and he's not looking to outside resources. He's not looking to Judah, not even looking to Egypt. He's looking to God, and God keeps swiping away at this nation that wants to overcome and overattack the nation of Israel. And the Bible tells us this, and this is so insightful. The first mention of Jonah in the Bible is found in the very next chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse number 25. Notice this is a prophecy. It's somewhat of an obscure prophecy. It's not one that has a whole book written about it, but it gives us insight historically onto what's happening in this land called Tomorrowland. Such a cool truth. Check it out. The Bible says, and he, the Lord, restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was at Gath-hefer. Now, this is what's interesting. Don't get concerned with all of the historical significance except for this point. Jonah is in a place where he is leading the sons of the prophets. He is speaking to the king of Israel, and he has a great national ministry inside of Israel. If you know the story of Jonah and the whale, say yes. Okay, so it's not an unfamiliar story. If you don't know the story, read the Bible, uh, read the historical account in Jonah chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 about what happens. Amazing story, biblical, historically accurate, amazing story of God. I don't have time to go into all of that. But in first Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we see this man named Jonah. This man named Jonah, who has great influence among the nation of Israel, God calls him to preach. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. When you get to the story of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God tells Jonah to leave the comforts of a Christian nation and go to a place that is completely hostile to who he is. We sometimes look at Jonah and say, why did you not go to Nineveh? But I want you to understand that was a hard ask. If I were to say to any one of you in here today, I want you to leave Las Vegas, Nevada, and I want you to go to Moscow. Oh, well, I I don't know that I would want to do that. Or I would like you to go to Beijing. And when you go to Beijing, I want you to preach loudly the message of Jesus Christ. Do you understand how difficult of an assignment that would be for us? As difficult an assignment as it would be for us to go into communist China and preach the message of Jesus Christ today, it's going to be difficult. Rather than going on the mission, you'd say, well, I'll just take a slight detour and I'll go to Bora Bora. No, God wants you to go to Moscow, Moscow. It's a difficult situation to say, oh yeah, I'd sign up for that. I'd be willing to do that. You understand the reservations that Jonah would have in going to Nineveh when you think about how wonderful it would be to go to Pyongyang, North Korea. Sign me up. I want to be on the first plane to Pyongyang, North Korea. It's not someplace that you're looking to vacation in, much less go on mission work. Understood? If you're with me, say yes. 
So when Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, that same or that similar uh, feelings are within inside of him. And I believe at the time of going to Nineveh, he's an older man, probably seasoned in ministry, perhaps 50 or 60 years old. He's not a young dude doing this. He's a person that God has worked. In fact, he's the best candidate possible. He's a strong believer who can take the message of God and go into Nineveh. And as he goes into Nineveh, this is what's fascinating. The work that started all the way back there with a man preaching, check it out, has just gone international. Don't let that get lost on you. Jonah is not an isolated story. Jonah reaches all the way back to a man who said, Lord, would you not let it pray, let it, let it rain until I, I, I say so, Lord? The line of that powerful message and the prophets of God reach all the way back 70, 80, 90 years to a man who says, I don't want my country to be lost. And in his passion for his God and his desire for a better tomorrow land, he prays, and now that message has not only fixed his country, that message has transcended its borders and it's going internationally. And that message, when it gets to Syria, look what the Bible says in Jonah 3.10, and God saw their works, that they turned from their way, and God repented from their evil, and he said, that he said that he would do, and he would not do it, and he did it not. History records, King Adad-Nirar abandoned polytheism around 800 BC, and for a period of about two decades, the nation of Syria abandoned polytheism and put their trust in a monotheistic system, the belief in the one true God. Udalali, that's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that God would take a person from a, a, a beaten down country and elevate him to bring national revival. And for the next hundred years, there is a peace, there is, there is a uh, um, suppression of the anger of God upon this nation that should be destroyed, and there is the blessings of God. If you read the book of Nahum, Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. If you ever want to read the sequel, where's part two to the book of Jonah? Read the book of Nahum. It talks about God's judgment on this nation, but for a hundred years. Now, this is what's fascinating. Elijah, back in his time, he said, I'm just one person, but God has brought not only national revival and peace for five straight kings through Jehu and an elevation of God above all the other gods. That message has not just gone to Elijah, but it has gone internationally because one man, the Bible tells us why would God do this? Because one man decides that he's going to do what God wants him to do. Why would he save Syria? The Bible says in Jonah chapter 4 and verse number 11 that there were six score thousand persons that could not discern between the right hand and the left hand. That means this, there were 120,000 people that did not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. When did you learn the difference between your right hand and your left hand? Some of you still don't know, but probably about five or six. So about five or six, you learned the difference between your right hand and the left hand. There were tens of thousands of children that God said, I don't want to see them judged. I don't want to see them raked with the rage and wrath 
of a holy God upon the sin of their parents. And so God in his mercy sends Jonah, and there is a national and city revival where children are saved and where God's word is promoted. And it all started with one man. Check it out. It starts with one man. God gives him a partner. They do the work of God together. As they do the work of God together, it affects a community. As it affects a community, the work of God affects a city, the city of Samaria. And as it affects a city, it affects Israel. And as it affects Israel, it changes the world. It literally goes nationally today. And here we are, some 2,700 years removed from the story, and God's still using his power today. Check it out. God still wants to use one man. He wants to use one woman. He wants to use people in this generation because the God of yesterday is the God of today, and he wants to demonstrate his power tomorrow. And the world can be changed when one man, one woman, they start a family and they just do what God wants them to do. With all of their imperfections, with all of their faults, with all of their failures, they determine we're going to do what God's going to do. And when they fight, they ask for forgiveness. And when they go into debt, they work hard to get out of debt together. And when he's inconsiderate, he asks forgiveness. And when she says something she shouldn't, they ask forgiveness. And, and it's not always perfect, but they're trying to do what is right. And they bring up their children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And when a family starts working the way God wants them to work, they partner with other people who are trying to do what God wants them to do. That's called a church. Oh, a church is not a place for perfect people. A church is a place for broken people like you and me to say, come on, yeah, we're messed up. Jesus forgives us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Jesus saves. So save people who find the forgiveness hand of God, say, we want to do something together. We want to work together. Let's, let's just do what God wants us to do. I'll, I'll keep you accountable, Juan. You keep me accountable, and you keep Gordon accountable because he needs accountability, and Gordon understands I need accountability, so he works with Anthony. We work together for the glory of God. We work in a church, and as we work in a church, we start to invest in a community. You would not you would not be surprised to drive around this neighborhood and see how God's used this church to impact the community. I could bring, I could bring leaders from our city and have them come up and say, this church has impacted this community. Jessica, couldn't I do that? I could bring leaders from the city and say, there are people here, this church has changed a community. This is the way the world has changed. And as a community starts to say, look at what God's done here, look at what God's done here, we share the message of what God's done in a community, and he starts to change a city. And perhaps if God starts to change a city, that message starts to go out, so that city starts to change a state. And perhaps from that state, it starts to change a country, and that country starts to affect not just a locality, not just our own economic understanding, but that country starts to change the world and the the way the world is changed is by you being a good dad, by you being a good mom, by you going to work and you working hard and you telling people about Jesus and you raising your kids up and you watching Paw Patrol and you learning whatever's going on in Bluey's family this week and you go to teenager soccer games and you get TC, uh, you, you go get some uh, frozen yogurt afterwards and you watch a movie together and you go to Sunday school and you after church, you talk about what the preacher talked about and what they learned in Sunday school and you help them make right morals and you view their phones and you spy on their phones because you're a good parent to make sure that they're not watching stupid Instagram videos and if they are watching a stupid Instagram video you say you should not be following this person 
one stupid Instagram video, but it's my phone, and you say, no, it's my phone because I pay for it, and then you take away their phone because they're watching stupid Instagram videos, and you instruct, and you parent, and you love, and you lead, and you ask for forgiveness, and you do what is right, and you make good decisions, and when you fall, you ask for forgiveness, and God forgives because Jesus saves, and then you tell somebody about Jesus, and then your friend's going through a problem. You say, can I pray for you? And then you bring them to church, and they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, and as they start trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior, they start working on their family members, and those family members start coming, they start trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior, and as they start trusting Christ as their Savior, they say, let's do something more, let's, let's go and face paint kids down in some, some hard-hit community, and let's go, let's go play some video games with some kids, and let's go bring some backpacks to some kids, and maybe we'll just give a Christmas tree to people, and we'll give a Christmas tree to people so we can tell people about Jesus Christ, and we've got an Easter service, and maybe here at this Easter service, we can give out games and candies and chocolates so that we can tell people all about Jesus Christ because the world needs Jesus. And when the world needs Jesus, you and I are the answer to change the world. That's how the world is changed. Oh, I'm all for voting. Vote. But it doesn't change the world. The last eight years, the world hasn't changed the way you want it to be. doesn't matter if you're a D or an R. Look at the last eight years. Oh, it's changed. everything's good now. It's not the politics that's going to change it. It's the people that change the world. And when you're the person that God wants you to be, you live in the purity and the power of Almighty God, you become a person like Elijah. God, my dad needs to be saved. God, would you save my dad? Well, I witnessed to him at Thanksgiving. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. But I'm going to witness to him again this summer. I have a friend who witnessed to his dad for more than a decade. His dad was 92 years old. He said to me, I don't think my dad's ever going to be saved. When he was 92 years old, he trusted Christ as a Savior. What's that? That's world change. Changes the world. How do you change the world? God, would you just please? And then God gives you a partner. God gives you a husband, your wife. And you say, you know what? We're not perfect, but we can raise these kids for the glory of God. And we can be the right type of husband and wife that God's given us. And we can serve together and we can love together. And maybe we can just be part of a church and that church can affect a community and a community can affect a city and that city can affect a country and a country can affect the world. You see, you are part of world change. Because the God of yesterday is the same God today. And he wants us to bring a better tomorrow. How does that happen? We live the future today. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would use the message of this lesson to be an encouragement to people. May we be the people that you want us to be so that our lives could be invested for your glory and bring about eternal change. And I ask this in Jesus' name. We hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless.